Tell you what, it is exciting to be here this evening. Appreciate all of you being here. We've got a number of folks that are visiting with us from neighboring congregations, and we're thankful, grateful to you for being interested in the work that's going on here in Denton this week, and it really is a pleasure to see all of you as well. I love you and appreciate uh, what you guys are doing in your congregations as well. We certainly are prayerful and lifting you up for good things for your congregation. We've got some that are visiting with us from the community, and we're especially welcome to have you. We want you to feel at home. You're certainly our welcome. Guests. Our purpose tonight is not to make fun or belittle or anything along those lines, but simply to study God's Word together. We're grateful that you have decided that you'd be willing to do that with us this evening and spend the evening with us. We hope that the singing's been exciting for you this evening, been enjoyable for you. It's fantastic singing tonight. I appreciate everybody's participation in that. I appreciate the prayer, Brother Leroy, uh, as well. And, and I hope the messages uh, this week have been beneficial to you. We've been looking at stories out of the Old Testament. Romans chapter 15 of our Verse number 4 says that for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And I want to tell you there's a lot of good stuff in the Old Testament and I've tried to pick out generally speaking probably some more obscure type stories in the Old Testament. This is not one of them tonight. This is probably one of the more popular stories out of the Old Testament but it's a very powerful story. So there's several things I want to do with the story tonight and I've taken the title for such a time as this from chapter 4. When we go along that, I'll kind of explain to you the context of that. Uh, But this is when Mordecai gets a message to Esther and says, how do you know that you're not queen for just such a time as this? Uh, That may be very well the reason why you're where you're at. And we'll talk about that as we go through the story. But there's three things I want to do. I want to introduce to you the characters. Once again, I want to remind you these aren't characters of a story as though you're reading a fiction novel. These are real people that lived in real place during the Medo-Persian Empire during that time frame. But the first thing I want to do is kind of introduce you to those individuals. Secondly, I want to look at the story itself. There's ten chapters in the book of Esther. And I want to very quickly walk through those ten chapters as quickly as possible. We're going to hit the highlights, obviously. Not going to be able to read word for word. But very quickly, we're going to go through the ten chapters of the story itself. And then when we close, you'll know we're getting near the end when you see that we're learning the lessons from the story of the book of Esther as well. So first of all, just want to introduce to you King Ahasuerus. That takes a little time sometimes to work on the tongue to get that name out. But King Ahasuerus, he's introduced to us in Esther chapter 1, 1 through 5. It came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even to Ethiopia over 107 and 20 provinces. That in those days when the King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which is in Shushan the palace, in the third year of his reign he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants. The power of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the province, is being before him. King Ahasuerus, uh, verse number 4, when he showed the riches of, the, of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even in 104 score days, when those days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Uh, generally, you would put him in the, in the time frame of 486 B.C. to approximately 465 B.C. So before Christ which would, Christ would have been 2013 approximately years ago without adjusting for calendar discrepancies and that kind of thing. So we're looking at 400 to 500 years before the days of Christ when these things took place. You find a verse there in Ezra chapter 6 and verse number 14. There's a little bit of a of, uh, scholars debate a little bit as to exactly who King Ahasuerus was. Some render him as Artaxerxes. Uh, some render him as Artaxerxes II or the son of Artaxerxes. 
Pharisees here that's found in Ezra chapter 6 and verse number 14. The second person I want to introduce you to is King Ahasuerus' first wife. Her name was Vashti. And she's talked to us at, or introduced to us in Esther chapter 1 beginning of verse number 11 that he, he had thrown this big party and he wanted to show off his wife. So he wanted to bring Vashti in in verse number 11, the queen before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, the old English term meaning he was extremely mad and his anger burned within him. So he wants to throw this party and he he not only invites but commands his wife Vashti to come. He wants to show her off to all the people. It's a big party. Uh, She's pretty to look at but she refuses to come and that creates a problem. In Esther chapter 1 and verse number 18 all of the guys started getting together and saying we got a problem. There's not any of the wives going to do what their husbands want them to do if the queen won't do what her husband wants her to do. And in verse number 18 we pick up the story Likewise shall all the ladies of Persia and media say this day unto all the king's princes which have heard of the deed of the queen. Thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him. And let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it be not altered. That Vashti come no more before king Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. And when the king's decree which he shall make shall be published throughout all his empire for it is great. All the wives shall give to their husbands honor both to great and small. So this created quite an uproar. She refused to come when the king called and everybody's upset over that said we've got a problem. Other wives are going to be doing the same thing and something needs to be done for uh, to take care of Ashti. Chapter 2 and verse number 1 After these things when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased. Now I want you to remember that phrase because it's going to come up later in the story. But his wrath was appeased. I don't know 100% what that means. I don't know if Ashti Ashley was divorced. I don't know if Vashti was put to pasture as a secondary wife, etc. Or if Vashti no longer existed. Something may have taken place with Vashti. Probably the last thing I just mentioned to you is probably what took place with Vashti. But just remember that phrase, his wrath was appeased. And he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Now the third person I want to introduce you to that we're going to see in the story is an individual named Mordecai. Now I want to say first of all as we talk about him I'm pronouncing his name the way the phonetical markings in my King James Bible and the people who put that Bible together at Cambridge Press put the phonetical markings. I recognize sometimes he's called Mordecai etc and people pronounce it differently. I gave this sermon one time in Plainview Texas. A young man about 10 years old came to me after the sermon. He said his name is Mordecai and I said how do you know his name's Mordecai? He said I saw the movie so his name may be Mordecai, but I'm going to pronounce it Mordecai because that's what's in my Bible. And But he is Esther's cousin. I just want you to notice some of the characteristics of Mordecai. Uh, chapter 2, verse number 7. He brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. That gives us a little bit of the relationship that he has to Esther. Uh, Hadassah is the Jewish name for Esther. And he brings up his uncle's daughter, which would essentially be his cousin. Esther is his cousin. 
And then we notice that she had neither father nor mother. The maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So I just want you to notice the characteristics of Mordecai, how much he cared for Esther, his cousin, much apparently much younger cousin, but cared for her, raised her as if she were his daughter. He had that much concern and care for her because she had lost her parents. She was orphaned and needed somebody to care for her. And then that's going to introduce you to Esther as well in the very same verse. We find out a few things about Esther. She was orphaned. We also know in the case that she was also very beautiful in that very same verse. She was fair and beautiful to look on. So she must have been an amazing looking young lady because we're going to see here in a moment that he chooses her above all the good looking ladies of the kingdom. Then we're going to uh, read about an individual by the name of Haman. Haman was the Jews' enemy. I hate to use, or I try not to use this word that often, H-A-T-E, but he H-A-T-E-D Jews. He did not like Jews, okay? He, he was a Jew's enemy. I want you to notice he's the bad guy in the story. That's Haman. Haman disliked Jews and his goal was to destroy the Jews. We read about him in chapter 3, verse number 10. Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad, dispersed among the people in all the province of thy kingdom. And their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver to the hands of those that I have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. And the king took his ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Jew's enemy. Now, I also want you just as a side note, because Sunday night we're going to talk about the Edomites, and I want you to notice the phrase, he was an Agagite, okay? Haman from Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Jew's enemy. That's going to come into play on our Sunday night sermon when we talk about the prophecy of Obadiah as well. So just take note of that. But then I want you to notice the very last part of those verses we just read. He was the Jew's enemy. He did not like Jews. He wanted them destroyed. He was the bad guy in this story. So let's very quickly walk through the story of the book of Esther. Ten chapters. I've already told you some of that early on in in chapter chapter 1 that King Ahasuerus throws a, a party and Vashti refused to come and he, the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased so Vashti was put away and uh, ultimately we find another party that's going to be thrown and that's the first thing I want to start and take a look at is there was a beauty pageant I'm going to call it that, that's not a Bible term but essentially they paraded all the pretty girls in front of the king to see who would win based on their beauty essentially so I'm going to call that a beauty pageant. Then we're going to look at Haman's plot. Esther had a decision to make when we get to chapter 4. Esther threw a banquet. Haman was humiliated. She threw a second banquet. That's a little bit confusing in the story, I'll be honest with you, as to why they had to have one banquet to have a second banquet, but we'll talk about that here in just a moment too. Mordecai, ultimately, there's a decree made at the very end of the story, and the Jews are ultimately victorious. So, if I lose you the rest of the way, you know the end of the story. The Jews win at the end of this story. Okay, so let's walk through 10 chapters very quickly. Esther chapter 2 
Verse number 2. Now we've already introduced the first chapter and introduced to you the characters of the story. Verse number 2. Then said the king's servants that ministered to him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace to the house of the women unto the custody of Hegi, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them. Let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Ashti and the thing Please the king, and he did so. So there was a proposal made. Let's throw a pageant. Let's let's do a beauty contest. Let's get all the ladies to parade in front of the king, and whoever wins is going to be king or going to be queen instead of Vashti. Vashti is no longer queen. We need somebody that's a better representation of the queen than Vashti was. So in chapter two and verse number eleven. They took all the fair young virgins and they took them into this Chamberlain's house and there was an individual that was in charge of all the fair young virgins and they were given all the things they needed to make themselves beautiful for the, for the king. But I just want you to notice Mordecai again and his attitude about Esther. In verse number 11, Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. Not only was this woman, this young lady, orphaned, she didn't have parents. She had a cousin that was raising her as his own daughter. But when she was taken into custody, essentially, and put in this house with all the pretty young girls, Mordecai walked around the court of that house every day wondering about how she's doing and what's happening with her. I just want you to notice the compassion of Mordecai. Chapter 2, verse number 15. When the turn of Esther came, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go into the king. She required nothing but what Hege, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. And I don't know basically how to explain this, except all these young ladies were given all the things to make them beautiful and care for to walk before the king. And she must have been an amazing beauty because she didn't need any of that stuff. She didn't need power. Paint. She didn't need makeup. She didn't need perfume. Whatever it was that, that was required of them. She didn't need that. She just went before the king and on beauty alone ultimately won that contest. In verse number 16, Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women and she obtained grace and favor at his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown upon her her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Here Esther wins this contest or wins this pageant where all the ladies are paraded in front of the king. She ultimately is the most beautiful. The king finds favor in her sight, grace and favor in her sight, and she is made queen. Okay, Now we find her as queen in chapter 2 and verse number 21. There's a little bit of a side note that takes place, and I want you to pay attention to that because it's going to come back up later in chapter 6, etc. of the story. But in chapter 2, in those days while Mordecai sat at the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Big Than and Tiresh, I love those names. You can tell they're bad guys. Big Than and Tiresh. These two guys uh, of those which kept the door were wroth. They were mad and sought to lay hand on King Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai who told it unto Esther the queen and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter it was found out therefore they were both hanged on a tree and it was written in the books of the chronicles 
of the king. I want you to remember that phrase because that's going to come back up too. It was written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings. What was written? That these two guys, Big Thin and Tyrish, who happened to be the king's chamberlains, were trying to, they were trying to run a coup. They were trying to overthrow the government. They wanted to kill King Ahasuerus. Mordecai, I heard it while he was outside around the king's gate. He got word to Esther. Esther got word to the king. The king found out, did an inquisition. I don't know how long it took. It only took one verse in your Bible. But I don't know how long the inquisition was, but it didn't seem to take very long. Found out it was true. These guys are hung on a tree. They're killed because they were trying to destroy the king, King Ahasuerus. And King Ahasuerus was... uh, protecting his kingdom, protecting his being king by putting these individuals to death. Haman had a plot. Haman did not like Jews and he wanted the Jews destroyed and he saw these Jews out here he saw that they were great in number and he wanted to see them destroyed and he went to the king kind of under a false pretense and said there's a certain people, never really naming who they were, said there's a certain people... uh, passage or the one we're fixing to get to uh, here in a moment said there's a certain people that are are not willing to serve you and you need to put out a decree that you'll pay a ransom for any deaths that happen if we could utterly destroy these people now Mordecai was a Jew and, he, and Haman really didn't like Jews when he saw Mordecai. Verse number 1 of chapter 3. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. And then the king's servants which were in the king's gate said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandments? You know, the king promotes Haman and says you know you're over all these things Haman's pretty proud of the the promotion he's making more money he's doing more things and he's in charge and he goes out there and and Mordecai this Jew would not bow down to him when he walked in the room and wouldn't give him reverence and that irritated him that much more so Esther chapter 3 verse number 4 it came to pass when they spake daily unto him and he hearkened not unto them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand for he told him that he was a Jew when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not nor did him reverence then was Haman full of wrath and he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone for they had showed him the people of Mordecai wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus even the people of Mordecai he wanted the Jews destroyed he wanted the people of Mordecai destroyed and he wanted every one of them destroyed he did not like Jews chapter 3 verse number 8 Haman said to King Ahasuerus and here's this verse that we read previously said there's a certain people they're scattered abroad they're dispersed among the people in all the province of thy kingdom in other words you've got danger on every side of you they're going to try to overtake you and he said in verse number 9 let it be written that they may be destroyed Excuse me. In verse number 10, the king took the ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Jew's enemy, and he put his ring, his signet, his seal on it, and said, destroy these people. They're trying to overtake me, destroy them. He didn't realize he was trying to destroy his queen. He didn't realize he was trying to destroy Mordecai, who had just saved his kingdom. But... He wanted these people that he thought were trying to overtake his kingdom. He wanted them destroyed. 
And then Esther ultimately has a decision because Mordecai hears there's a decree out to kill all the Jews. Mordecai is a Jew. He knows Esther is a Jew. And so he tries to get word to Esther to get to the king and, and tell the king, warn him, hey, you're trying to destroy all the Jews out here and the Jews are not trying to hurt you or trying to uh, destroy you in any way. Chapter 4. Verse number 1, when Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes, put on sackcloth with ashes, went out in the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. You guys that's been here all week long, y'all know how many times the phrase of he rent his clothes in twain or he sat in sackcloth and ashes. He, he, he mourned with a bitter cry. He was in grief. He was in despair. And he and came even before the king's gate for none might enter into the king's gate without or clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, whithersoever the king King's commandment and his decree came. There was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. They were in grief. Mordecai, I heard there's a decree to destroy the Jews. He's in grief. And everybody, and he says, spread the word, guys. There's a decree out to kill us. Everybody needs to be in grief. Everybody needs to be mourning. Everybody needs to be fasting and praying because we're going to get destroyed if this doesn't get changed. Chapter 4, verse number 8. Also he gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was given to Shushan to destroy them and said, show it to Esther and to declare it unto her and to charge her that she should go in into the king to make supplication unto him and to make requests before him for her people. And Hatak came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. And again, Esther spake unto Hatak and gave him commandment unto Mordecai. All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come into the king at, come unto the king in the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So here she is. She's a new queen. She's 30 days into the king into the, being a queen and and all of a sudden she gets this word from Mordecai who had sent a message to her and says, hey there's a decree trying to destroy the Jews. Up until this time the king Ahasuerus didn't even know she was a Jew. And she said I can't go to him. Everybody knows you can't approach the king unless he calls you. And if you approach him and he doesn't extend the golden scepter, you're in trouble. You're going to be destroyed. That's not a good plan. This is dangerous to do. So she's got a decision to make. Do I go and do I try to save the Jewish people? And chapter 4, verse number 14, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace, this is Mordecai talking, if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And that's where I got the title of the sermon, For Such a Time as This. To me, it's one of the two famous phrases in the story of the book of Esther. And... In this phrase, it's a very powerful phrase. Mordecai is getting a message to Esther saying, how do you know that you're not queen for just this very purpose, to save our people? That you're here for just such a time as this. Now, notice what she does. Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan. Fast ye for me. Neither eat nor drink three days, night and day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so will I go in into the king which is not according to the law. And to me, this is the second famous phrase in the story of Esther. What a brave young lady Esther was. She said, if I perish, 
I perish. She got message back to Mordecai and said, you go tell everybody to be fasting and praying. She said, but I made a decision. I'm going to go into him. And if I perish, I perish. What a brave young lady. But her people, the salvation of her people was really subject to her decision. This was no small decision. This was a major decision. Do I go into the king? I could die if I go into the king. Or all my people could die if I don't go into the king. What do I do? And she said, if I perish, I perish. And she made the decision to go in. So she decides to throw a banquet. Esther chapter 5, verse number 1. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel, stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house, and the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the house. And it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Now this is the dangerous moment. She stands before the king and and he sees her and she's waiting. Am I going to die here? I mean, is he fixing to order me to be killed? That probably has something to do with the wrath of King Ahasuerus being appeased with Vashti to begin with. I mean, he's got a reputation probably, right? Am I going to die or am I going to live? And he extends the golden scepter. She came and touched the top of the scepter. She knew she was okay. You can, you can approach the king. You can give whatever it is you've got on your mind. You can talk. You can talk about it. Chapter 5, verse number 3. Then the king said unto her, What wilt thou, uh, Queen Esther, and what is thy request? It shall be given unto thee unto half of the kingdom. And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for them. Now this is where it gets a little bit confusing for me, but as a member of the Church of Christ, I think I can relate. She she comes in before the king and she he extends the golden scepter. She comes and touches the top of the scepter and he says, what do you need, Esther? Under half of the kingdom, I'll give it to you. She must have been pretty. Because under half of the kingdom, I'll give it to you. What is it that you need, Esther? She really found grace and favor in his sight. And she said, I want to invite you to another feast. Now, why didn't we just take care of the second feast while we were there? But like I was saying, have y'all ever heard the story of the young boy that went to show and tell and the first one put up a crucifix and he said, I belong to this kind of religion. I'm a Christian person that belongs to this kind of religion. And somebody else handed up, got up before the class and put out a star of David and said, well, I'm a Jew and this is a star of David. And, and then a member of the Church of Christ got up with a casserole and said, I'm a member of the Church of Christ. You know, so I can relate with the fact that they had a banquet to invite somebody to a banquet. We kind of like to do that. You know, we're going to have dinner on the ground to invite everybody to a dinner on the ground. So they had it. She had a feast. She's going to invite people uh, to the feast. And Esther answered and said, if it seemed good unto thee, let the king and Haman. I want Haman there is what she said. I want Haman there. If it seemed good, let Haman come to this day to the banquet that I prepared for him. Verse number seven, then answered Esther and said, my petition and my request is if I have found favor in the sight of the king and if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them and I'll do it tomorrow as the king has said. Now word gets to Haman. He's invited to the feast. Haman has gone into, he's gotten a promotion. He's over a lot of people. He's in charge of things. Things are going pretty good at the Haman household. In fact, he's pretty happy. He goes home to Mrs. Haman. He says to Mrs. Haman, you'll see her name here in just a moment. But he goes home to Mrs. Haman. He says, Mrs. Haman, you have married the right man. I mean, I have been promoted. I mean, we're fixing to drive a new Lexus horse instead of the old, you know, Toyota horse that we used to ride. It's going to be a whole different deal for us. I mean, you've married the 
right guy. You're married to Haman. I've gotten a promotion. And not only that, tomorrow I've been asked to have dinner with the king and the queen. I mean, it's pretty special times. Look at verse number 9 of chapter 5. Haman went forth with that day joyful with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, he stood not up nor moved for him. He was full of indignation against Mordecai. Oh, he's skipping along. He's been invited to the party. Things are going good. But then he goes out and Mordecai won't even bow to him. Oh, and then he is just furious. Absolutely furious. We've got to destroy these people, right? Verse number 10. Nevertheless, Haman said, refrained himself. And when he came home, he sent and called for his friends. And Zeresh, his wife, I love her name. You know she's got to be a wicked person with a name like Zeresh. Have you ever met a woman named Zeresh? Well, you'll love Zeresh because I want to tell you, I've never thought about anybody being this wicked or thinking this wicked. I mean, outside of maybe Jezebel in Scripture. But, I mean, imagine surrounding yourself with a woman like Zeresh. Haman told them the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above all the princes and servants of the king. And Haman said, Moreover, yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king under the banquet that she had prepared but myself. And tomorrow I'm invited unto her also with the king. I mean, I'm invited to the party. I was I had dinner with them today. Things are going good. You've married the right guy, but I've got a problem. Verse number 13, yet all this availed me nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. Verse number 14, then said Zeresh his wife, you'll love her and all his friends unto him. Let a gallows be made of 50 cubits high and tomorrow speak thou unto the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go, go thou in merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman and he caused the gallows to be made. Now what a wife. Honey, I, had a, I really had a good day. I got promoted. You know, we're fixing to be driving the Lexus. Things are going along really well. I mean, life is good. Got invited to the party with the king, but this guy won't bow down and worship me. And she goes, kill him? <laughs> I mean, what an amazing wife. Just kill him. Take it Oh, good idea. Let's cause a gallows to be made. We'll hang him there on. And he goes on happily as though nothing. The guy's just written the death decree for somebody, but he's not struggling over it at all. He's happy to see the guy gone, right? Because he didn't like Jews. Now, Haman comes to the next party. But before that happens, in Esther chapter 6 and verse number 1, on that night could not the king sleep. And he commanded to bring the book of records of the Chronicles that were read before the king. Now, I want you to pause a moment. I want you to think about this. Earlier on in the story, we saw that Mordecai had saved the kingdom because he reported Big Than and Teresh that they were trying to overthrow King Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus, king Ahasuerus made inquisition and hung them. They killed them right there. He saved his kingdom from these people. And Mordecai should have been a hero. But it was written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings what Mordecai had done to save the kingdom. But here King Ahasuerus is up one night and he can't sleep. He's got insomnia. And there was no Ambien or other drugs to take. And he's wide awake and he says, Hey, read me some stuff out of the books of the Chronicles of the Kings. So they begin to read to him out of the books of the Chronicles of the Kings. And here's what they read. It was found written that Mordecai had told Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains and keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor and dignity dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered to him, There is nothing done for him. You know, he's laying awake. He says, Read me some stuff out of the books of the Chronicles. They come across this story how Mordecai had saved the kingdom. And the king stops them 
for a moment, pauses, he says, did we get him a gift card? I mean, did we do something to say we appreciate him saving the kingdom? Did we do something nice? Did we send him a card? Honey, did we send them a thank you card? I mean, was anything done at all? And they said, we didn't do anything for him. So then Haman comes into the king. In verse number 6 of chapter 6, Haman came in. And the king said unto him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, Haman's full of Haman. Haman is full of himself. He thinks within his heart, To whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? Of course. I've been promoted. Fixing to drive the new Lexus horse. I mean, I've had king with, or had king with the dinner. Had dinner with the king and the queen. I mean, there's nothing better. You married the right guy. And then I come into the king and he says, what would we do to somebody that we would want to honor? And he goes, he's talking about me. he, He wants to honor me. So he says, Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delighteth to honor, let the royal apparel be brought which the king useth to wear, and the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head. And let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man with all whom the king delighteth to honor, and bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done for the man to whom the king delighteth to honor. Here's what you need to do, king. If you really want to honor somebody, you're going to put the royal robe on him, you're going to put a crown on his head, you're going to put him on the Lexus horse, and you're going to run him through town, and you're going to say, the king wants to honor this guy. But all along, he's thinking, that's going to happen to me. Now, I want you to notice the next verse. The king said to Haman, make haste, take the apparel and the horse as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai, the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. Everything you just said, I want it done. I want it done to Mordecai, the one guy he cannot stand. So he has to go through town. Haman took the apparel and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and brought him on horseback through the street of the city and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done unto the man to whom the king delighteth to honor. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate, but Haman hasted to his house mourning and having his head covered. It's like he covered his head with a bag, didn't want anybody to see him because he's out there proclaiming the wonderful things of Mordecai. Haman was humiliated. It was all said and done. That pride came crushing down. That immense amount of pride and ego that he had. So Esther throws the second banquet. Haman's invited, the king's invited, the queen's coming, the queen has brought her casserole. She's going to feed the couple of them and and she's approaching the king. In verse number 3 of chapter 7, Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition of my people at my request. And she says, For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen or bondwomen, I I had held my tongue. Although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. And the king Ahasuerus answered and said to Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? Now that's our very King James way of saying, What? I mean, the king's going, You're pleading for your people. And you're saying there's somebody trying to destroy your people. Who's trying to destroy your people? And she answers in verse number 6, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman that's here at this banquet together with us. Now Haman was very perceptive. He was afraid before the king and the queen. Haman had a very sharp sense of the obvious. 
there's a problem. Verse number 7, the king arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath went into the palace garden and Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. He's sharp. The king gets up mad. He runs out to the garden. He's upset. He says, who's trying to do this to my people? He realizes he's been caught. He's been trying to, to destroy the Jews, etc. Kind of, a, you know, kind of without the king knowing it. And he's been caught. And he's pleading for his life from the, from the queen because he has determined, he's, he's sharp this way, that his life could be in danger. Now, the king comes back in verse number 8. Out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine, Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. And then said the king, Will he force the queen also before me in this house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. So the king comes in from the garden, comes in, and and she's up in the bedroom. Esther's gone to the bedroom. He's followed her to the bedroom. And he's laying on the bed of the queen. And he goes, Not only are you trying to destroy the Jews and you're doing things you shouldn't be doing, but now you're in the bed with my wife? That's essentially what's taking place. Take him out of here. And they cover his face. And it's kind of like if you see the old western movies maybe where they would hang somebody, they'd cover him, cover him with a hood first before they'd hang him. That kind of idea. They covered him up and they take him into custody. Verse number 9, Harbana, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold, also the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. The king, then the king said, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Now, you remember how that he came home to Zeresh's wife and said, you know, I'm doing this great stuff, but I've got this one guy that's bothering me. And she said, we'll kill him. Let's make some gallows. Let's hang him on there. And he goes, good idea. Let's do that. Well, those gallows ended up being his death sentence because when he was taken into custody, people went, oh, he was making some gallows for another guy over here, old Mordecai. Why don't we just hang him on those gallows? Good plan. You know, they've already got them built. And he's hung thereon. And then I want you to notice this phrase at the very end of verse number 10. Then was the king's wrath pacified. Now, I don't know what that meant with Vashti, but it's pretty clear what it meant here. There was no more Haman. Haman was put to death in this case. So ultimately, as we get near to the end of the story, chapter 8, verse number 1 through 3, On that day did King Ahasuerus give the house of Haman, the Jew's enemy, unto Esther the queen. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was unto her. And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And Esther spake yet again before the king, and fell down at his feet, and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he had devised against the Jews. And ultimately they win that battle, chapter 9, verse number 4, Mordecai, battle or battles. Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame went out throughout all the provinces for this man Mordecai waxed greater and greater. Thus the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and slaughter and destruction and did what they would unto those that hated them. Chapter 10, verse number 1 through 3, And the king Ahasuerus laid a tribute upon the land, upon the isles of the sea, and all the acts of his power and his might, and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai, whereunto the king had advanced him. Are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the Medes and the Persians or Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was next unto King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and accepted of the multitude of his brethren seeking the wealth of his people and seeking peace to all his seed. And there you've got a very brief description of ten chapters of the book of Esther. 
Okay, you know the story. You see what's taking place. And the Jews win in the end. They're victorious. They're known throughout all the land. Mordecai is known throughout all the land. Mordecai is faithful to the king. King Ahasuerus is, is uh, proud of him. I want to look at some lessons I think we can take from this tonight and go home with. I want you to go home with some things that you can make practical application in your Christian walk or maybe you're searching for a Christian walk. I want to tell you there's no better place to search than the Scriptures. The Scriptures give us insight into the character of God, the mind of God, and the difference between right and wrong, goodness and bad, goodness and evil and those type of things. We see that in this story. and There's a lot of lessons you could go home with, but I've got four different things I want to talk about tonight. Number one, doing what's right is not always easy. And you remember the case of Mordecai coming to Esther and saying, go into the king. I know you've only been queen 30 days, but go into the king and beg for our people. And she says, I could die doing this. This is an important decision. I could die doing this. And she said, if I perish, I perish. But she made the decision to do it. And I want to tell you, not do, or doing the right thing is not always the easy thing to do. And you're going to be challenged, young people, you're going to be challenged in your life at times with decisions, moral decisions, or, or decisions on what you're going to do in life, forks in the road, paths. And I want to tell you that the right thing is not always the easy thing to do. It takes real character and maturity. It takes really uh, dignity and class and Christian principles, all that, to make the right decision even when it's a hard decision. And most of the older ones in the crowd today are saying, yeah, that's right, talk to those young people because they got a lot of forks in the road, got a lot of decisions to make, and all that's true. But I want to tell you older folks, doing what's right is not always easy. But I want to encourage you to do the right thing. Because what happens a lot of times, we get into business and we start... Things start running just a little bit different. People start asking you to do things that's not exactly right and things like that. And I want to tell you it's not always the easy thing to do the right thing. And I want to encourage you to do the right thing regardless. My dad worked in a laboratory at a plastics plant. And his job was a lab technician or he was the guy that was supposed to tell them what the product was what the standards were versus what the reality was what was pumping out of the plant in plastic pellets was it the quality the milk jug people needed that was his job and I can't tell you the number of times my dad would come home and say that it didn't meet the standard the plastic was too loose or the plastic was too tight or the plastic was whatever it didn't meet the standard and somebody at his plant said can you change those numbers and make them fit? Make sure they fit the standard. See, it's real easy for us sometimes to look at the young folks and say, you've got a lot of decisions in life. But I want to tell you, sometimes it's not the easy thing to do for big people either, is it? Because I want to tell you, sometimes you've got a boss pressing on you that says, hey, I need these numbers to look this way. I want to tell you, doing the right thing is not always the easy thing, but always do the right thing. It'll help you in life. And I will tell you that Esther's a good example of that. It was not easy to do. But I want to tell you it was the right thing to do. She went to the king to try to save her people. Number two, one decision can affect a lot of people. 
Now, I've taken that from the passage here in Esther chapter 5 and verse number 2 where the king extended the, the scepter and she came and touched it. She made the decision to go in. But that one decision affected a lot of things. It affected Esther not dying. That one decision to extend the scepter uh, saved the Jewish people. Now, there's a series of one decisions. Don't get me wrong. But I will tell you, be careful the decisions you make because one decision can affect a lot of people. One decision you make in life can affect a lot of people. People get a lot of times get to thinking they live in a vacuum. Uh, that you know that I, well, I'm my own person. I have the right to make my own decisions in life. Nobody else can tell me what to do. And I want to tell you, you are your own person, and you do have free will and free moral choice. And all those things are true. But the reality is, your decisions do affect a lot of people. When you make bad decisions, you're affecting your parents. When you make bad decisions, you're affecting your siblings, which are your brothers and sisters. When you make bad decisions, you're affecting your church. When you make bad decisions, you're affecting your grandchildren. When you make bad decisions, you're affecting a lot of people. Don't think you live on an island. No man is an island. No man stands alone. You don't live in a vacuum somewhere. The decisions you make affect things. Be careful the decisions you make because one decision affects a lot of people. Tonight we're going to sing an invitation song here in a few moments and and you're going to have an opportunity to make a decision. I will tell you that one decision can change your family history. That one decision to come to Christ can affect your family tree. It can, it's a generational decision. Be careful the decisions you make. Maybe you're going to school, getting a college education. Maybe a generational change or hist- of history in your family. It may be generational in income and things like that. It, it, those decisions are big decisions. Who you marry is a huge decision. Be careful the decision you make. One decision can affect a lot of people. Be careful. But there's no greater decision than a decision to come to Christ. And it'll affect a lot of people too. You may not see it today. These young people, for instance, are sitting here going, well, I'm just one guy. Yeah, you are. And one day you'll probably be the father or mother of four children or 19 children or 25 children. But let's just say that you're the parent of four children. You know, we talked a lot about church growth in our part of the country. And in the case of Lisa and I, we had four children. With If you add Lisa and Ty into that, you've got six people in the congregation. Our four children married four individuals. So those six people now become ten people. If each one of our children have four children apiece... We're 26 people in a congregation. And that's just one family in in essentially a single generation or maybe two to three generations of time frame. 26 people. And you add that in the same congregation. We go to church with Leland and his wife Kathy when she was living. And they had nine children. And those nine children get married And you've got 18 plus 2, you've got 20 before they all have 4 children apiece. And we got 56 people joining my 26 people. We're a congregation of 100 with just 2 people. 2 brothers going to church together that have married and had children. Be careful the decision you make. You're affecting a lot of people. You are affecting generations to come. Be careful the decision you make. One, One decision affects a lot of people. 
Now, think about the power of those numbers if all of those children stay faithful and all those grandchildren stay faithful. And imagine here in Denton if you guys and your spouses and your children and your grandchildren stay faithful to the Lord, you guys are going to be blowing out the walls of this building. But sadly enough, there's some bad decisions in there too often, aren't there? Be careful the decisions you make. Number three, how long has it been since you were touched by the salvation of someone? One of the things I, I wanted to take as a lesson tonight is from chapter 4 with Mordecai. Mordecai hears there's a decree that's going to destroy his people. And he sits in sackcloth and ashes and calls for fasting and, and praying and everything because his people are going to be destroyed. And he does everything in his power to change that. Let's go to the queen. Let's, let's even risk the queen's life to go to the king. We've got to do something. Our people are going to be destroyed. And he's willing to put everything on the line because he was concerned about saving people. How long has it been since it touched you to save someone? I'm probably talking to the, to the choir today, as they would say, the proverbial choir, because you guys have been out this week and you've been knocking doors and passing flyers, inviting people to a meeting and talking to people and doing good things and all that. But how long has it been? since it touched you that there were people that were going to hell, that were going to be eternally destroyed without somebody warning them. And that you were really touched by that. How long has it been since you were touched with work in Nigeria or India or other places in South America or wherever, Ireland and other places? How long has it been since you were touched? That salvation, the preaching of the gospel needs to go out. And I'm touched in my heart. We've got to do something and we've got to warn people and we've got to do something about it. How long has it been since we were touched with American evangelism? That we need to go out, we need to spread the gospel, and we need to, we need to sow seed. And we don't, there are people dying and going to hell if we don't do this. How long has it been since you sat in sackcloth and ashes with tears and fasting and praying and weeping and mourning because you were concerned about saving someone? How long has it been? I just want to take the lesson tonight from Mordecai. How impressive it was of Mordecai his people were saved because he had that kind of concern for, for his people. And they were able to be saved. The last thing I want to leave you with is the importance of living your life with purpose. Living your life with intention, on purpose. And one of the things I want you to take is the title of the sermon. Ephesians chapter 4. Not Ephesians chapter 4. Esther chapter 4, verse number 14. It said, Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You know, what Mordecai was reminding Esther of is, this may very well be your purpose in life. This may be very well be the reason you're here. Live it. And I don't know all of your history. Anytime a person stands up and speaks to 100 plus people or whatever, there's a lot of different people with a lot of different backgrounds and all that. Promise you we're not making fun of those today or, or to even try to manipulate them in any way. I just want you to think in terms of the fact that you may very well be where you're at because that's where you need to be. Say, well, I'm going through a difficult time. Esther was going through a difficult time. It was a tough decision. Do I go in? Do I not go in? 
her people are going to be destroyed if I don't go in. She's under a lot of stress. And a lot of times we get to thinking maybe, you know, we're under a lot of stress. I don't need any, you know, and all that sort of stuff. You know, the reality is even the difficult time you may be going through may very well be you may be the person that's needed for that time. You may make a difference in that time. Maybe you've experienced breakup in a family. Orphan children. Maybe you've experienced children that have been separated from family because of divorce or chaos in their home and that kind of thing. And all they've got is you. It's all they've got. They've got you. Maybe you're there for just that purpose. Maybe. Live it. Be the kind of influence to them that you can be. Be the kind of parent that you need to be. Or the kind of Mordecai that you could be to your cousin or your young cousin. Live it. Live it with purpose. Do it on purpose. Husbands, you've taken on the responsibility to be a husband. Be the best husband that you can be. Live your life with purpose. Wives, you've taken on the responsibility to be a wife. Live your life with purpose. Be the best wife that you can be. Maybe, and you, we've been talking this week, Michael and I both have been talking a little bit about the for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, and sickness and health, and we're choosing better and health and richer and all those things. You know, the other may happen, like Michael talked about. It may turn into sicker and, and poorer and worse. Maybe you're the person that needs to be there to help walk through that. Maybe you're the neighbor that's needed in that situation to give the kind of advice to help people. Maybe you're there for a reason. How do you know that you're not here for just such a time as that? I want to encourage you to live your life in such a way that you make a difference wherever you're at. In whatever role or responsibility. Maybe the kids have gone away from the church and the grandchildren or, or what's left. Be the best grandparents that you can be. Live your life with purpose. Do it, Live it. Do it. Influence. Be the kind of person that you can be. How do you know that you're not there for just such a time as that? Be the kind of person that you need to be. There's a guy by the name of uh, Mike Minson. Y'all may have had him in this part of the country and may have had this very sermon. But he's got a sermon on the life of Joseph. How that Joseph was favored in his father's household, sold into slavery, raised himself up in Potiphar's household, um, was put into prison, interpreted dreams. Y'all know the basic story of Joseph out of the Old Testament. And the basic theme of his sermon, are y'all weird like me? Do y'all have top ten sermons? You know, that, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one that's kind of weird that way, but there are top ten sermons in my book. Now, there may be a hundred of them, but they're top ten, you know what I mean? They're sermons that, for instance, if I go to church on a Sunday, Sunday morning, and I, and I drive out of the church parking lot, and I look to Lisa and say, tell me one thing that was a point in that sermon, and, and Lisa goes, ain't got it, you know, there's nothing there. That does not make the top ten. You know, that's the forgettable sermon. But there are some sermons occasionally. You may remember the next day, but you can't remember a week later. Those are not top ten sermons. Top ten sermons to me are sermons that years later, or maybe decades later, I'm still sitting in a private Bible study with somebody using the points that I learned from the sermon that somebody gave at church. That's a top ten sermon to me. 
Mike Minson gave one of those in our part of the country on the life of Joseph. The basic point of his sermon, I'm not going to rehash it, y'all can invite him to come preach it for you sometime, but the basic four points of his sermon was that bad things sometimes happen to good people. It did in the case of Joseph. Sometimes it happens because you make bad decisions and that happens. Sometimes we make bad decisions. We're going to talk a little bit about that this weekend as well in some of our stories. Number two, sometimes bad things happen because of other people's decisions. In fact, you it wasn't even your decision. I think of in in my case, in my story, my parents went through a divorce. I promise you it was not my decision. I considered it a traumatic event that happened in my life, but it wasn't my decision to make that decision to go through a divorce. Other people made those decisions that brought pain into my life. And I will tell you, sometimes children grow up in a home. Bad stuff are happening around children. I want to promise you, children, you didn't do anything wrong. Sometimes other people made bad decisions. And sometimes kids even feel guilty, like, well, maybe it was because of me. That you know, The reality is other people make bad decisions. Sometimes people get out on a road, they get drunk, they have a car wreck, people die, etc. Somebody made a bad decision that may have brought chaos into your life. It's not always because you made a bad decision that bad stuff happens. His third point was time and chance happen to throw all the bounce of the ball. Sometimes you just are in the wrong place at the wrong time. Sometimes bad stuff happens. And it's not because you did something wrong. It's not because they did something wrong. You were just in the wrong spot. And bad stuff happened. Time and chance happened to all the Ecclesiastes the preacher said. And then his fourth point was the providential care of God. What father is he that loveth his children and chasteneth them not? You know, sometimes there is the chastening of God keeping you in his providential care. It's because God loves you or cares for you. Now I can tell you, I don't know where all those four start and stop. Sometimes those four overlap each other and sometimes time and chance may all be within God's providential care and all those sort of things. I recognize it's a very complex issue to discuss but what I'm encouraging you tonight is stay within the providential care of God. Whatever that is. You may be going through a bad time. You may, you may experience some difficulty or tragedy in your life. You may be in some stressful moments. Stay in God's providential care. Stay within His perfect will for your life. And I promise you, you'll see blessing at the end. Now that may be blessing we spiritually discern. It may not be in the flesh. But it's blessing. It's the right thing to do. I want to encourage you again. Doing the right thing is not always the easy thing to do. One decision can affect a lot of people. Weep for the salvation of somebody. Care about somebody else and their salvation. And then I want to tell you to live within God's purpose. And I think in Esther we see that. We see Esther making that decision that says, this may be the very reason I'm queen. I'm going to go in and endanger my life. I'm going to put it all on the line to save my people. What decision do you make tonight? We're going to sing an invitation song. And it says there's a great day coming. And I will tell you that at the end of this life, when it's all said and done, there's a day that's coming. There's a day of reckoning. There's a day of accountability. There's a judgment day. There's a day coming when He comes back to take His own. How did you live your life in the meantime? Between now and then, what decisions do you make? There are forks in the road. What decision do you make at those forks? And tonight, at this moment, for just this purpose, you may be here for this reason, to make this decision tonight. A decision to come to Christ. 
Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? If you repented of your sins, be willing to change your life and live for God? Are you willing to confess His name before men? Be buried with Him in the watery grave of baptism to rise and walk in newness of life? Tonight, when we sing this song, it's a decision time. It's a decision point. Do we extend out the golden scepter? Do we put it all on the line to say, I'm going to make a decision that says, whatever it takes, that's what I'm going to do. That's the decision you have. And I'll tell you, God's standing there with a scepter. And He's extending it out to you. Christ has done the sacrifice for you. He's extended to you an offering of salvation. What decision do you make? Are you here tonight for just such a time as this? Make a decision to come to Christ tonight. Make a decision to serve Him. And do so before it's too late. Live your life on purpose. And make a purposeful decision to come to Christ as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.